0: Our scripture text this morning is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It's uh, it's good to be back. Carol asked me, she goes, you think you still remember how to preach? I said, well, you can tell me when to finish. Um, I think most of us can admit that we need uh, most of us can admit that we need help, and that we benefit from people training or encouraging us, whether it's a athletic contest or an educational pursuit. But I mean, for someone to come along and mentor, train, be kind of like a pace setter, I mean that's very helpful for us. Um, I know that as we follow Christ in this age, it's a struggle, and to know that there are people that I can look at, look to has been of great encouragement to me to remain faithful. And many of you have done that. The way you've lived your lives or the way you've suffered well, the way you've handled adversity or even success has been encouragement to me. But, you know, for many, um, also not just those of you in front of me, but some of my greatest mentors are 100 years plus dead. And so we can learn from both those living and those who have since passed. And so since 2004, we've done one biographical sermon every year just to bring before you a saint that has impacted the church or the world, hoping that you might identify with points in their life uh, that you might be able to be challenged by or at least be encouraged in. Uh, I think we do this for a number of reasons. Number one, I think it is scriptural, as the passage was right about this cloud of witnesses. And in chapter 12 of Hebrews, he's really reflecting on chapter 11, all the saints that are listed there uh, who were faithful in times of adversity and difficulty. And they're like witnesses. They're not witnesses watching us from heaven, which is kind of a little, little eerie. But it, they're more testifying to us. That's the word. They're testifying to us that God can persevere. And even in the most difficult times. And so, and so you know, this saint here, Elizabeth Elliot, is going to be able to testify to us about a life well lived. Not perfect, but well lived. I think it's also pastoral, pastorally wise to consider these things. Uh, because we get to see God's grace in flawed saints. And we think, wow, God did that in her? He might do the same in me. I think it's also humbling. You know, we tend to always think the last generation always thinks they have the corner on the knowledge, the corner of knowledge on truth and wisdom. And we see the wisdom in those who have gone before. And, and then last, I think it should be, and I trust it will be, end up worshipful. One author said this, God ordains that we gaze on his glory dimly mirrored in the ministry of his flawed saints. He intends for us to consider their lives in peer through the imperfections of their faith and behold the beauty of their God. So she will be a window for us, if you will, a window through which we can see the glory of God. Elizabeth Elliot is the one that we'll be speaking of this year. Many of you know her. Uh, Those of you who don't, you might know that she was the wife of Jim Elliot, one of the five missionaries uh, killed in Ecuador in 1956 as they tried to reach an unreached people group, the Dani, and, uh, and they lost their lives in bringing the gospel. We're going to see in her life, I think, an incredible commitment and excitement for God, and yet with flaws, just like us. So it's a little quick side note. Uh, Carol got to meet her We were in seminary, Gordon-Conwell, back in the early 90s, and uh, Carol took the two girls over to play in the playground. And this film crew came up, and Elizabeth Elliott came up, and they were kind of uh, videoing a teaching that she was given. And they uh, asked if our kids could be videoed. So there is a video. It's called, um, this is my own bio. Uh, There is a video called uh, Forget Me Not on grandparenting. Uh, you can turn to the eight-minute mark, and you'll see a little blonde and a little brunette who are playing on the playground. Um, but let's get back to Elizabeth. So Elizabeth Elliot, or Elizabeth Howard, uh, and by the way, you don't need to, those of you who take notes, don't worry about this. Just email me. I'll send you the transcript, so that way you can just sit back and listen and, and hopefully enjoy it. Born in December of 26 in, in uh, Belgium. She, uh, within months, moved with her family back to Philadelphia or Germantown. Her father was doing a work with the Sunday School Times. It was a, a periodical that went out to hundreds of churches. Her home was stable, ordered, godly. Her parents made scripture and hymn singing a regular part. They would have daily devotions, even if leaving on vacation, they would still have a devotion that morning. They hosted missionaries on furlough, very big mission center. They were missionaries, and they would come in and tell the exploits of God on the field. This is what set the seed of missions in Betty Elliot's heart. In fact, one such example is Betty Stamm. Betty Stamm was a missionary that she and her husband, John, would ultimately be murdered by the Chinese communists in 1934. Huge impact on her life. In fact, Betty Stamm's prayer that she would pray over and over Elizabeth Elliott would put it in her Bible and read it over and over. Listen to what she prayed. Lord, I give up all my plans and purposes, all my desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to thee to be yours forever. Fill me and seal me with the Holy Spirit. Use me as you will. Send me where you will and work out your whole will for my life at any cost now and forever. That would be a prayer that would be materialized in her life. She was born strong intellect, strong uh, intellect, determined, very blunt, very blunt, qualities that would both serve her but also cause her some challenge. Her first words were at nine months. She had a vocabulary at 16 months. My mother said I couldn't speak till I was three, so let that kind of calibrate you. She was a natural student, dedicated, hardworking, graduate uh, valedictorian of her class. While at a boarding school for women, though, she was introduced to Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was an um, English missionary that went to India, known for her absolute commitment to God. She would be, as Elizabeth said, she was my first spiritual mother. She showed me the shape of godliness. So Elizabeth knew the things of God through scriptures and through hymns. But it's through the life of Amy Carmichael that she actually saw. This is what godliness looks like. She served on that field. For 55 years without a furlough. She died there at the age of 83. Her words kind of set the fire for missions when um, Amy Carmichael said, All that grieves is but for a moment. All that pleases is but for a moment. Only the eternal is important. So that would kind of begin to form in uh, Betty Elliott's heart. She'd go to Wheaton in 1944 with the desire for missions. She studied classical Greek, as it would be best to help translate the scriptures for remote peoples. While at Wheaton, she would meet her husband, Jim Elliot, who had a missionary heart as well. He was also studying in the languages, so as to serve in missions. Uh, Jim Elliot was a year younger and roomed with her younger brother. Uh, he would end up being the love of her life after a long, and what you'll hear about is a torturous relationship, really. Um, she wrote this, though, in her journal of spring of forty-seven. Um, she said, "Jim uh, had a good talk with Jim Elliot. This is the first mention of him in her journal. He's a wonderful guy. We both refuse to accept the conventional Christian life and worldview. May the Lord grant wisdom. And by the way, this sermon is, I don't know that there's anything original. It comes out of these two books right here that we looked at as a staff and myself, and they're both great biographies. Vaughn is the name of one, and Austin is the name of the other, both um, women writers. Okay, so their marriage, though, was preceded, they were married in October 9, 1953 in Quito, Ecuador, but their marriage was preceded by this long relationship. And as I said, one biographer, a biographer said that it's both loving and torturous. I mean, they're both writers, so you have all this journaling and letters between them, and the way they express their love is incredible, rich, rich vocabulary. But it's tortured too because they were so, uh, they were young, they were immature, they were so subjected to their feelings up and down, they didn't have an understanding of life and ministry, just thinking ministry is everything and marriage is nothing. So they'd come to find balance, but you just see their youthfulness in their letters So following Wheaton, after they graduated and and worked, they went overseas, not yet married, in 52 to Ecuador. And uh, she would work among the Colorado Indians, a people group in Ecuador, and he went to the Amazon rainforest. Now, she would go there to translate the Bible into the language of the Colorado Indians. Now, remember, she's coming over with a fairly simplistic faith. The idea is, if you do this, God will do this. It's really an understanding that many of us have. Listen to her words. She says, uh, God blesses those who obey him and works things out in beautiful, demonstrable ways for those who have given themselves to do his work. I, as far as I knew, was here in obedience, and my purpose was to do God's work. There was every reason to expect that God would grant success. I want you to hear that because it was in their time and it's in our time. There's often the view that we have like a quid pro quo relationship. Well, I did this, so God, you got to do this. And and we we kind of make equational our relationship with God. Well, God's going to begin to test and begin to bend and deepen her understanding of suffering and sovereignty and missions. In fact, she speaks about when she got to the Colorado Indians, her conditions of life. Let me just give you a quick read. She says, I was in a smoke-filled house. Everything was dark and there were unidentified bodies stretched out on the floor in the kitchen and the living room. The place smelled, it was a mixture of burned grease, onions, smoke, mildew, unwashed people, human waste. The depression the house brought made me feel guilty, for I thought at the time that the ugliness and squalor and lack of privacy were sacrifices appropriate for a servant of the Lord. If I did not like the atmosphere, it must mean I was not yet prepared to lay down my life as I had promised. So you see that kind of, that challenging that she's experiencing on a physical level. But God had something more for her. In fact, she would call it a kind of death of sorts. So she's among these Colorado Indians. She's translating the Bible. She finds a man, Don Macario, who, know, who knew both the Spanish language and the, uh, the Colorado Indian tongue. It was a find, she said, the one man in the world, helping her in translation. A key person to help with a translator so that you could put the Bible into their tongue. She works with them. It's amazingly effective. He gets murdered, shot in the head. He's dead. The one man that could help her do it is gone. And then all of her notes, all of her journals, all of her cards, they were in one suitcase that was stolen. She received that letter. So all of her work just vanished. It was all gone. She says, this was my first school year. She says, my first experience of having... My... First experience of having to bow down before that which I could not possibly explain. Usually, we need not bow. We can simply ignore the unexplainable because we have other things to occupy our minds. We sweep it under the rug. We evade the questions. Faith Most severe tests come, not when we see nothing, but when we see a stunning array of evidence that seems to prove our faith vain. If God were God, if he were omnipotent, if he cared, would this have happened? In this that I face now, the reward of my obedience? One turns in disbelief again from the circumstances and look into the abyss. But in the abyss there is only blackness, no glimmer of light. No answering echo. So I want you to feel this first year on the mission field, is a crushing blow to her understanding of sovereignty of God and how God works. In fact, uh, one biogra- her biographer says, Macario's death and the subsequent theft of the language notes gouged a fatal hole in the usual smooth surface of her correct Christian answers and created a conundrum for the dutiful, devout, curious, and high-achieving new missionary. God began to teach her truths, she would probe deeper and deeper over the ensuing decades, Multi, multifaceted aspects of his will that could not be charted, categorized, or listed in an index. So you see this crushing blow to understanding of God. Okay, so she leaves the Colorado Indians, uh, comes to Jim, uh, and begins to work with him in the Amazon rainforest. Of course, they were married, as I said, in Quito. You hear her immense joy in marriage. They, the first place was a roach-infested, broken-down wooden structure in the Amazon rainforest. She writes to her family. She says, I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. I'm grateful to God. I can ask nothing more of what he has given me and showing me his will, leading me, And giving me Jim. So they had this long, torturous relationship, finally got married, and now they're just enjoying the depth of their marriage. Well, they're walking, they're working in the Amazon rainforest. Uh, at At the time, Jim and these four other missionary friends were trying to make inroads to this group of people called the Wadowni. They were a primitive group. They were a savage group in the sense that they anthropologists say they were one of the most suicidal tribes of people ever. Let me give you an example. U.S. Shell Oil Company paid $40 million for the rights to drill in that part of the Amazon rainforest. And after having 14 of their workers speared to death, they picked up stakes without pumping a gallon of oil. That's the kind of people that they were trying to share the gospel with. So they started making connections with this tribe. There was a good initial meeting. They had taken a plane, landed near one of their camps. They radioed back all these five men, had five wives, radioed back, they made the contact, they're excited to hear what happens, the next day they hear nothing. Then within four days, they find out that that each man was speared to death. In her grief, she journaled the incredible presence of God. While fighting despair over the loss of Jim, she'd have recurring nightmares that she'd keep seeing him come out of the forest, but then she'd wake up and find it not true. You see her fight for faith when she journals a poem from Frederick Myers. Yea, through life, through death, through sorrow, through sinning, he shall suffice me, for he hath suffered. Christ is the end, for Christ was the beginning. It's incredible to see her struggle. It wasn't this up kind of to infinity and beyond faith. It was a true wrestling of soul, darkness, sadness. You heard how excited she was to be married, and within two short years, she loses the husband that she waited three times that for. Well, after his death, she remained, worked among the Kichwa people, um, and they had a 10-month-old daughter, Valerie. She continued teaching the Indians, supporting the church. There she would write her first book, Gates of Splendor. It was a book that I read when Carol and I were overseas in missions, an incredible book about these five men and the mission that they had. It would record number nine on the top 50 books that have shaped evangelicals. She also wrote Shadow of the Almighty, Life and Testament of Jim Elliott, another wonderful, wonderful book. But here's the, here's the thing. In that first year she began to have a heartbeat for the Wadani people. She says this, The Wadani are a constant weight to me. Who is to go and when? Even within a few weeks of his death, she says, I long now to go to the Wadani. The two things, the only things to which I can look forward to are the coming of Christ and my going to the Wadani. Before I feared to place all before him, now the most precious has been stripped from me accept me in thy name and if it be possible send me soon to the Wadani you see an incredible faith there now remarkably in that year or the short in the following year she meets two Wadani women who had come out of the tribe and she met them with Rachel Saint another missionary another linguist and she begins to learn the language and then these Wadani women women go back to the tribe to seek an invitation for these women to come and live with the tribe that speared their husband and Rachel Saint. Her brother, Nate Saint was one of the five missionaries that died and incredibly they were invited back And So on October 6, 1958, within two years of their speared death, they move into the tribe uh, to share the gospel. In fact, Life Magazine, most of you may not remember Life Magazine. It was an incredible magazine that everybody had in America. And in the 1958 headlines, it was, Child Among Her Father's Killers, Missionaries Live with the Wadani. It is estimated that 76% of all adult Americans read that article. Now, she writes in her journal, The Day, Going to Live with Them, Hers is less sensational, but no less dramatic. She says, if a duty is clear, the dangers surrounding it are irrelevant. That's a strong faith. Well, they would live among the tribe for two years. They'd be sharing gospel stories, translating the scriptures. Uh, People, some men, even some of the killers of the five missionaries, came to faith. Minkai was one. He would become a leader in that tribe, a leader, a Christian leader of the followers of Christ. He would travel the U.S. He would travel the world speaking to the transforming power of God in this tribe, some in this tribe, many in this tribe coming to faith in Christ. In fact, he just died three years ago. He lived a long, faithful life. So that was in in 1961. She left 1963. She remained in Ecuador for a couple of years. Then she came back to America where she would spend 50 plus years of her life uh, writing and speaking, attending conferences. She wrote 25 books. Some are translated into 13 different languages. She did CDs, DVDs, conferences, the whole thing. She spoke on marriage and missions, biblical femininity, biblical masculinity. She spoke on purity. Many of you have read her book, Passion and Purity. She wrote extensively on suffering. The Path of Suffering was a, a great uh, book that she wrote. Just incredibly proficient in writing. And um, she would lead a um, 13 years, she did a radio program. And listen, she'd begin every, every, um, every program. She'd say, you are loved with an everlasting love and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is a woman that had suffered so much. She would marry again. Her second husband, uh, Addison Leach, she'd marry him in 69. He died in 74 from terrible bout with cancer. And then she had to take borders in. She had two men living in the basement of their home. One would end up marrying her daughter, and the other, Lars Gren, would end up marrying her, and uh, she would be married to him until her death. It was in 1998 when she was diagnosed with dementia. Few people were told uh, in 2004 she stopped being able to, to minister and speak and write and um, ultimately, she would die in 2015. But she told her family these words She said, If you ever come in and find me on the floor, don't call 911. Just wait. In other words, she wanted to go to God. She didn't want to be resisted. She didn't want to be extended. If, if I'm on the floor, just let me go to God. On the early hours of the morning of June 15, 2015, she suffered a major stroke, and he didn't call 911. And they called a doctor to see what to expect, and then they read scripture, they sang, and they prayed. And at 6:15 that night, she opened her eyes, closed her eyes, smiled, and died. Uh, it's an incredible life to read; it really is. I want to draw some lessons for you, if I can. And try to take her life and what can we gain and profit from. You know, C.S. Lewis, if you remember last year, he told his secretary a few weeks before dying, he said, they probably won't remember him in five years. And uh, that was a big, that was a big mistake. We do. And we'll remember her for many, many years as well. So what will we remember? Well, a couple of lessons would be first, would be that the messiness of ministry with God's people. The messiness of ministry. This is why a lot of people stay out of ministry because it's very messy. And we see in her life the challenge, you know, we look at her life and say, how could she, in fact, I mean, the difficulty would be living in the Amazon rainforest, right? No, she had a greater difficulty with the woman that she went to the Wadani with. You know, missionaries can tend to be a very strong-willed, let's call stubborn people. I think a lot of times they need that to live in the context that they do. But it also creates sometimes havoc with the other missionaries that you're serving with. So you have this miracle of God moving on a tribe that they invite the wives of you know, the men that they've killed among them, and then they don't get along. And they fight and they battle. She wrote this in her journal: it's madness, sheer madness. One is sure of everything, another is not even sure of even one thing. What a fellowship, what a joy divine. In her journal, she would detail the struggles, the conflict, the tensions that existed. They would meet for Bible reading and prayer, but they couldn't agree on temperament, on translation philosophy. They couldn't agree on anything. In fact, she wrote this in her journal. She goes, I sometimes wonder if she's quite sane. She wonders if I am. I wonder if I am too when I hear denying things that I could quote verbatim. So we go on, two women shut up together at the end of the world, both convinced God brought us here, both convinced we have nothing to confess, both feeling the situation is hopeless. Oh, wretched woman that I am, is it possible for two who love him to be at odds and be right? These are questions I do not expect answers for. Tragically, after two years, she left that mission to continue on with the Kichwa people and the ministry that she and Jim had started. How did she process this? I mean, all the work that she had seen God, how do you process that? She said, I find that faith is more vigorously exercised when I can find no satisfying explanation for the way God does things. I have to hope without evidence saying that things will come right in the end. Not merely that we shall receive compensation, but that we in all creation will be redeemed. And then she said, the disorders and sorrows in my own life, attributable solely to my own fault or perhaps somebody else's or perhaps to a mixture of both or perhaps neither. They've given me the chance to learn a little more each time of the meaning of the cross. What can I do with the sins of others? Nothing. But what can I do with my own? And what did Jesus do with them? Take them to the cross, put them down at the foot, let them stay there. The cross has become my home, my rest, my shelter, my refuge. God works through flawed characters. You know, Rachel saying it turns out later that she may have been a little difficult to work with, but the same was said of Betty Elliot. But what you find is that sometimes things just don't work. But don't we see that in our own marriages, in our own ministries, in our own church, in the greater world? She just had to end up sometimes, you know, it doesn't all end up with kind of a bow at the end. Places at the foot of the cross have mercy on me and moves forward. So that's the first thing. Second thing, the place of mystery in understanding God, particularly in suffering. Now, she learned to trust God in the unexplainable, in the hard-to-tease-out situations in life. What you see as you read the book is she moves from this triumphal Christianity that everything has to work out, everything has to be beautiful, and she begins to accept a little more that no God may be doing something that we just won't fully understand. She used to come at it with Christian cliches and platitudes. It'll all work out. All things work out for those who trust the Lord. She began to back away from that. Still trusting it, but allowing God's mystery to come in. You know, today we often want our trials and tragedies. We want them either fixed or we want them explained. We want to see a purpose. We want to see that something good has come. Well, this person died. Well, this person came to faith. We want to always make there some equational relationship with God. They would ask her, have you had the victory yet, Elizabeth, over losing Jim? Or they would say to her, they would say, have you gotten over Jim's death since all things worked together for good? And here's what she noted, which was incredible. She goes, people were more comfortable with accepting these missionaries dying than their widows grieving. They didn't want to accept the fact that they were grieving. Shouldn't you have greater hope? He's going to be raised up. He suffered for God's glory, failing to understand the complexity of who we are as humans. She noted that the futility, mind-numbing sense of despair, doesn't come from the thing itself, but from the demand to know why. Listen to what she writes. This is a little bit of an extended quote, but it's helpful. There is always the urge to oversimplify, to weigh in at once with interpretations that cannot possibly cover all the data or stand up to close inspection. We know, for example, that time and time again in the history of the Christian church, that the blood of martyrs has been the seed of the church. So we're tempted to assume a simple equation here. Five men died. This will mean X number of Wadani Christians. Perhaps, perhaps not. Cause and effect are in God's hands. Is it not the part of faith simply to let it rest there? God is God. I dethrone him in my heart if I demand he satisfy my idea of justice. For us widows, a question as to why the men who had trusted God to be both shield and defender should be allowed to be speared to death was not one that could be easily answered in 1956, nor now. But I believe with all my heart that God's story is a happy ending, but not yet. Not necessarily yet. It takes faith to hold on to that in the face of a great burden of experience, which seems to prove otherwise. What God means by happiness and goodness is a far higher thing than we can conceive. In fact, in a series of talks on suffering is not for nothing, she writes, nothing explains away or solves the tremendous mystery of suffering. God is God. He is a 3 personal God. He loves us. We're not adrift in chaos. To me, this is the most terrifi- fortifying thing, the most stabilizing, the most peace-giving thing that I know anything about in the universe. Every time things have seemingly fallen apart in my life, I've gone back to the things that do not change. So there's mystery. We we want to allow mystery, not have all the answers and find God still to be God, a personal God who loves us. Thirdly, she reminds us of the glory of obedience. You know, when, when we call for obedience and preachers begin to call and speak to the commands of God, a lot of times we hear, ah, more legalism, more rules, you know, and just show obedience the door. Give me faith and give me grace and give me love, you know. We forget about that old hymn, Trust and Obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. She adds an ingredient. She brings a needed correction to this idea of cheap grace. There is the call of God to obey. There are the commands of God. We do need to read them and treat them as this is God's call upon our lives and walk in obedience to them. All of us can read the scriptures. Mark Twain said, it's not the things I don't understand of the problems. It's the things that I do. So there's a call for obedience. She began to see obedience not as, okay, if I obey, then I'm led right to the good end. She said obedience is just a way of life. She said it this way. He leads us right on, right through, right up to the threshold of heaven. He does not say to us ever, here it is. That is the success of obedience. But here am I. Fear not. So there's a call for our lives to walk in obedience, which she modeled well. Uh, fourth, the value of being practical. Remember, when you read about Belle, she is a high intellect, right? Reflective. She is often mystical in some of her writings. And After Jim died, she didn't turn back and kind of theorize and philosophize everything. In fact, one biographer said that she didn't kind of have to just get in touch with her feelings. No, she had a mission group to run. She had Indians to teach, an airstrip to be cleared, a hydroelectric system to be installed. She had a church to be supported. She had a daughter to be read. Uh, An old Saxon poem helped her over and over, which is, do the next thing. It goes this way. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing. Leave all results, do the next thing. Only a couple more. The danger of evaluating missions and ministry in human metrics. You know, Baptists, we love numbers. We love to count everything, count people, count stuff. And and she found quickly uh, the difficulty in trying to measure ministry with metrics. Now, uh, metrics and measurements are helpful maybe in assessing stewardship and how we're using what we're using, but not in eternal destiny. So she would often ask crowds to whom she spoke, what would happen to your idea of God? if you found that your work and ministry was useless. Now, this wasn't irrelevant to her, right? Colorado Indians, nothing. Five missionaries, start a mission, dead. Can't get along with Rachel Saint with the Wadani people. Seems ineffective. So people would ask her about the success of her mission, and she says, that's worthless currency. She didn't see you could measure it. She said it this way, the reality is not in what we're accomplishing but rather to what we're becoming. Now, I don't want to create a false dichotomy there. You know, we, we do want to investigate how we're doing things. But do we ever look at what's becoming in us? How are we changing through this? Not just what are we producing for God? And then, of course, there's the role of suffering as essential to faith. So she didn't deny suffering. She didn't try to write off the reality of pain or theology, wouldn't, write, wouldn't allow it. Of course, her biographer said, "You know, many of us in North America are culturally programmed to avoid pain at all costs. We're led to think our lives will be like a trip on the lazy river, occasional rapids, some perhaps infrequent trials, but for the most part, life should be smooth for us. And yet we see her life was marked. Just potted with suffering. not just the loss of Jim having to raise a child on her own. The nightmares that she faced, the difficulties in relationships, the confusion, the turmoil. She wrestled with an aching loneliness in her heart. She said, well, may this hunger prove what is in my heart and produce fruits of righteousness. But I see little of it now. So you hear her being okay and transparent and honest with the struggles that she had. She would marry, and as I said, and bury a second husband. And then the third marriage, the one book by Lucy Austin seemed to take a little more of the varnish off her life and shared how even in that third marriage, it was a marriage marked by loneliness. She wrote on marriage. She was faithful in it, and yet it was difficult. Years later, she would speak about loss as essential to leading us to God. She said this, Jesus carried our sorrows. He suffered. Not that we might not suffer but that our suffering would be like his. I quote, To hell then with self-pity. Every stage of the pilgrimage is a chance to know him, to be brought to him. Loneliness is a stage, and thank God only a stage, when we are terribly aware of our helplessness. We may accept this. Thankful it brings us to the very present help himself. So it's a pilgrimage we're on. Even after 20 years of her second husband dying, she said, The Lord in his mercy helped me to see a little more clearly in my second widowhood what I only dimly saw in my first, that suffering is a gift, a call, a vocation, not merely a condition to be endured. You say, yeah, but how does the suffering of God reconcile with the love of God? Well, she spoke to that. She said, our vision is so limited, we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God is of a different nature altogether. It does not hate tragedy. It never denies reality. It stands in the very teeth of suffering. The love of God did not protect his only son. This was the proof of his love that he gave that son and then let him go to Calvary's cross. The legions of angels could have rescued him. So this is strong tonic. We need this in our day. We need to understand how to suffer well. So I pray that in this you can see how God can be glorified through the life of an imperfect saint. She had incredible gifts, talents, a zeal for God, and yet she was flawed. Roller coaster of emotions. Expressing uh, challenges of expressing healthy. I didn't quote her own struggle with understanding her own soul. She was aloof, often distant, could be cold, stoic. And yet she was buoyed beyond this truth. This was kind of the theme of her life. And it's helped me. If I pulled one nugget out of the books, she says, God can be trusted, not because of what he's doing or our ability to understand it, but because of who he is. It simplifies it for us. Just know God. Know God, love God. And you'll be ready for the good and the bad and the difficult. Let me just pray for us now as we kind of turn our minds to communion. Father God, would you give us the grace to understand in greater measure your goodness and your greatness in our lives? And I mean not just in the times of of sweet and good, but even in the times of suffering and hard. May we see that you're so good and you're so powerful that you work In the light and you work in the dark. All bringing the fullness of your image to bear in our lives. Changing us from glory to glory. So that we can see this present suffering is nothing to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. May we be a people with one eye on this life. Serving, loving, sacrificing. And one eye on that glory to come that we may be found faithful. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.